Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult, and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. This episode is with Ellie De Decker, the Chief Executive of the Bromley by Bow Centre, a nationally renowned community centre in East London. Before this, Ellie was the England Director of the National Lottery Community Fund, a huge job controlling a budget of 400 million. Ellie describes her decision to move from this highly visible national role to an ultra-local community-focused one. We talk about the support the Bromley Babu Centre provides, which ranges from health and wellbeing services, employment and skills support, through to adult social care. But the most impactful thing about the centre is the physical environment and the culture, which creates an oasis for local people to come and get the help they need. The centre works closely with the NHS, as well as Council Adult Social Care and Public Health Services, which gives Ellie great insight into what's working in the current system and what isn't. We talk about the importance of the wider social determinants of health and how these are not yet prioritised by the formal system, despite the impact they have on preventing demand for expensive NHS interventions. Ellie and I discuss how leaders will often talk the talk on better collaboration, but often this doesn't filter down to the day-to-day -day activities of staff and middle managers, and therefore organisations and services remain siloed and people seeking support see no real difference. A key element of effective collaboration has to be better data sharing, which allows partners to target their support in the best possible way and to also track their impact. Unfortunately, this remains a difficult issue and is often left in the too difficult pile. Having said all this, Ellie is remarkably optimistic and positive. Her mantra is, assume it's possible, and I think you will be inspired by this conversation. Ellie, you're very welcome onto the Radical Reformers podcast. It's great to see you again. We, we worked together quite a few years ago now, but for people listening who maybe don't know who you are, could you just introduce yourself? 
Yeah, thank you very much, Andrew, and it's a pleasure to be uh, with you today. So my name is Elie De Decker, and I'm currently the Chief Executive Officer of the Bromley Bibo Centre. Excellent. And before that, what did you do? So before then, um, I was with the National Tree Community Fund for quite some uh, some years in a number of yeah. roles. My last role was uh, as the England Director, so responsible for all the funding across England. Wow. And before that, have you always worked in kind of community services, kind of supporting community services? No, actually, a long time ago now, I actually started my career um, in the private sector. So I was a management consultant for a number of years. Oh, we like we like management consultants. I'm I'm a management consultant. Absolutely. So I, I, I even went to business school. I did an MBA for two years and sort of management consultancy for about five years. Um, and I really liked it. You know, I liked the sort of analytical rigor. I'm quite analytical myself in terms of the way that I sort of um, structure problems. So I did really enjoy my time. But at um, at the end of the day, at some point, it became clear to me that although I loved problem solving, I still do. I didn't really want to do it for the financial sort of bottom line. I was more interested in the social bottom line. And that's why I changed sectors. And that that's a really interesting journey. And you must have at some point just made that decision because I know other people who have, you know, I started in management consultancy in the telecom sector and quite quickly realized that that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to do something focused on public services. So how how did that journey happen for you? Yeah. It was really interesting. It didn't sort of happen, um, you know, in one go. Um, I knew that I wanted to sort of reflect on things a little bit that after five years, I did want to take a break. But maybe I didn't feel completely brave enough at that particular point to, to firmly make a decision. So I sort of gave myself a couple of options. I said, you know, I'll try a couple of things out for a couple of years and then I'll make my decision. So I went abroad. Um, did some work um, in the humanitarian sector um, and it was when I sort of came back after two years that it was clear that I was not going to go back to the private sector. So yeah. I gave myself a little bit of time to make that decision because it is a really big decision and yeah. sometimes you need a bit of time to think things through. Yeah and you obviously don't regret making that decision though. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Again, I really enjoyed my time as a management consultant and it did really give me um, the sort of opportunity to acquire skills and, and a, a way of working that I really still value today and still use today yeah. um, and that I think are helpful to me today. But yeah. yes, I, I do, definitely don't regret making, making Very. a change. Very good. So you mentioned your role at the National Lottery Community Fund as the England director. Now, for anybody who doesn't know, that's a massive job. So the entire fund I think you'll correct me on the numbers if I'm wrong here, distributes about half a million a year, almost about 400 of that are within the England remit, which was your remit. So it's huge. Can you say a little bit about how you got started there and how you ended up in that very senior role? Yeah, I did a number of um, roles in the sector before then, and um, um, I was a funder in a smaller sort of funding organisation before joining the National Lottery. And again, I've never been a person who sort of really planned out uh, my career, sort of the different steps. I sort of fell into um, opportunities um, all throughout my career. And I was uh, at a smaller funder uh, called Impetus, um, where I had been for eight years. And I sort of felt that there was time to sort of explore something new. 
And via VIA, I then had the, uh, the opportunity to, to go on in the secondment initially with the National Lottery uh, Community Fund, um, heading up one of the sort of strategic programs. And I really enjoyed that. It was really interesting. I then sort of made the jump. I left the sort of previous organization, formally joined National Lottery Community Fund. And then sort of after every, you know, every sort of couple of years, um, found other opportunities within the fund, uh, sort of increasing my remit, sort of, uh, you know, moving up uh, yeah. the uh, chain, so to speak, when um, until I had the opportunity to apply for the England director role. So you moved from there, from that very senior position within the National Lottery Community Fund to the Bromley by Bow Centre. So on the face of it, moving from a national role to a very ultra-local role in a much smaller organisation may not seem like an entirely logical move. So what what attracted you to that? Yeah, I find that very interesting because it seemed very, very logical um, in my mind at, at the time when I made the decision. So for me, it wasn't such a such a, a, a you know a, a logical choice. But people have asked me that that question, so it is quite interesting for me to reflect on. So National Lottery Community Fund obviously is all about community, um, and and we, we we spoke about community um, every single day uh, during my time there. But I have to admit, um, you know, as England director at some point, and it was sort of obviously after the COVID. Uh, period, I felt very, very removed from community. And I was really, really keen to sort of get close to community again and really start feeling again um, what that actually meant. And Bromley Babo Centre really is all about community. We're located in the heart of the community. And I experienced sort of being in a community now on a daily basis. And that really was a, was one of the main reasons why I wanted to make the switch. Yeah. Um, another reason was that Bromley Babos Centre, uh, we have this sort of integrated, holistic approach um, to supporting the community to thrive. And I was always very interested in that sort of um, integrated, holistic approach. Intuitively, that makes a lot of sense to me. And then yeah. the Bromley Babos Centre has, you know, it's a local organisation and we pride ourselves on, on being very, very local. But we do have a national reputation, so you know, yeah. to a certain extent. Um, I, I didn't feel that I was sort of losing that sort of ability to impact uh, at the yeah. national level. And so just to talk about the centre itself. So how would you describe the centre and how did it come about? Because I know it's got a really rich history. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we're, it's, 2024 is quite a special year in the history of the of the centre because we're going to be uh, celebrating our 40th anniversary already. Wow. So, um the, 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 the Bromley Babo Centre at the heart is, is a hub for the community. We're located in East London in the borough of Tower Hamlet. And we are, you know, our purpose is to really support our community to thrive. Um, we are lucky that we are located. We're based on a three acre site. So we have a lovely park um, around us and we have some lovely buildings. And at the core, first and foremost, we are about being a space, a place for the community to come, to be, to be together, to connect. And um, again, since I've been with the Bromley Barbeau Centre now two years, it's something that maybe I really quite didn't quite really appreciate the importance of that for communities, especially um, given today's challenges, having places where people can come together, where they feel connected, where they feel that they belong. 
So that's really sort of our starting yeah. point. We have deep relationships um, through, you know, because we've been in the community for such a long time and people do really feel comfortable um, coming to us and building on those relationships. If people then feel that they need specific areas of support, we can then sort of offer a broad range of different services to yeah. people in the community. So it's those yeah. two aspects um, that um, we feel um, enable us to sort of work on our purpose of supporting the community to try. Yeah. And what services can people receive at the centre? Yeah. So say I was a resident and was popping yeah. along. Well, yeah. What could I get? So there's four basic sort of um, areas of, of services that we provide. So uh, first, there's our integrated advice service, and that includes energy advice, housing advice, welfare benefits advice. And as you can imagine, with some of the challenges, obviously, that the communities have faced up and down the country and also in Bromley by over the last few years, and specifically, again, with the cost of living crisis, energy crisis, that's been a very, very important area of our delivery. And then we have employability, enterprise and learning. So we provide um, opportunities for people to improve their skills, learn English. Um, you know, if people have um, ideas to start a business, we can help them incubate their business. And if people just want to go back into the job level, we can help them with their employability skills. So, again, given our community and some of the challenges, that's a very important area. Then we have one of the things that sets the Bromley Barbos Centre apart, one of the things that we're very well known for is our connections with the health system. So, again, it's all about sort of an integrated approach to um, a person's well-being. And um, we provide what we call integrated health and well-being. That's very much sort of building on social prescribing, working very closely with local GP practices. And then finally, we offer social care in the community. So we offer a place uh, for people with learning disabilities to come and access a wide range of uh, enriching activities. So we have a very broad. Very wide range. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to come back and ask you about specifically about health and well-being a bit later. But um, I've written down my next question I've written down here is, is it all in one building? But I had no idea you had a site that was so big. So I'm guessing it's not all in one building. So, we, we, you know, again, our site is such a, it's, an inter- it's such an interesting place. And it was designed to be quite, you know, it, we're a bit of a quirky site, um, as yeah. sort of different sort of buildings um, linked. Um, and it was specifically designed to sort of flow. We don't have big arrows that sort of tell people if you're coming from this element of the service, you have to go into this part of the building. Um, in a big arrow to the other side it's meant for people to sort of explore a lot of people get lost but again that's a little bit that's part that, of the that's experience. part of the journey is it that's absolutely and <laughs> uh, stimulating conversations stimulating connections so it's really interesting because it's so hard to put your finger on what makes our site quite special but a lot of people who come to the Bromley Bobo Centre for the first time describe it as when they sort of enter the park and, and, and they sort of decide as being a place where you immediately feel relaxed. So the, yeah. the word oasis comes up so much when people describe our site or the, the word haven. And we are located in the middle of Tower Hamlets, which is incredibly densely populated. The A12 sort of runs right by us. But then as soon as you enter the Bromley Barbeau Centre, you feel that sort of sense of some bit of relaxation, the weight of the world going off your shoulders. So it's quite a special place. 
we could all do with a bit of that at the minute. Absolutely. I think Absolutely. the world is not getting any less stressful, I don't think, Absolutely. unfortunately. Yeah, and again, you know, it's something that I don't think is always fully appreciated is how important having those places um, is to mm. communities. And, and another thing, right, so obviously you've asked me about services, um, and I think those services are very, very important. And obviously people who need some of those, the services, they need them because the day-to-day life is, is difficult and the communities really face very, very tough challenges and have yeah. very difficult choices to make. But the centre, um, you know, at the core of it, it's about joy. And and some of my highlights of the year, as always, the sort of community events that we organise, where, again, it's about people coming together in a place that they feel comfortable, in a place that they feel they own. It's not our site, it's a site for the community. And, and people engage, people just want to be together and enjoy. Yeah. Really, really interesting. Thank you. Um, so I have to ask you about funding now. So obviously, this all costs money to it try does, and deliver. Where does your funding come from? Oh, it's a puzzle. It's a patchwork. So we yeah. are not a small organization for a community um, organization. We're relatively large. Um, so we have a turnover of about three million pounds. Mm-hmm. But we have to put that funding together from over 130 sources of funding. Oh, wow. Yes. So that tells you something about the complexity of our funding model. And and much of our funding is short term. So I'm happy if somebody signs, you know, a contract or, or, you know, funding agreement that covers two years. Quite a lot of our funding is for less than two years. So we're basically, it's a constant, constant, constant search for additional funding. And we have to go everywhere. So we have statutory funding, sort of local authority, health, the very sort of health bodies that we're engaging with, through philanthropists, through corporates, through some individuals, trusts and foundations. You name it, um, we, 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 we go there. Um, so it's an incredibly complex picture to put together. And it's yeah. not, yeah, and, and it, it's not, it's not always giving us the sort of, the ability to think strategically and, and, and to feel sustainable, to give that certainty to the community that will continue to be here and that the services will continue to be here. Yeah. What would an ideal longer term funding settlement look like? Because I know that you have some ideas around what funding could be available or what a better way of doing it might be. Yeah. Well, so so listen, funding you know, it's challenging all around. There, there, there's no sort of magic, you know, bullets or magic money trees, I think was a term that, that was used. That is the term, yeah. Yeah, that Everyone was the, the, the terms. So, 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 but one of the sort of the conversations that I'm, that I'm trying to have with our stakeholders is, again, about how cool we think as a society places and spaces like the Bromley Babos Centre really are for communities. And and for me, you know, I think there is now sufficient evidence and I can see it every day when I'm at the Bromley Babos Centre. I think places and spaces like the Bromley Babos Centre are absolutely core to thriving communities in the same way that schools are core, in the same way that GP practices are core, in the same way that faith spaces are core, in the same way that hospitals are core. But places and spaces like the Bromley Babo Centre, we don't get any core funding. So yeah. we provide a service that I think there is now sort of acceptance, 
um, that it is core to what makes a thriving community, but we're not funded in that way. And, you know, so, so do I think that the health uh, service should take us up more? Absolutely, I do. But I don't think it's only about the health service. I think it's about sort of a recognition that um, what we do is relevant in the round to thriving communities in the round and that we should be funded in that way. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I'm a huge believer in investing in the wider determinants of health and, and well-being, the social Absolutely. determinants. And I think it's about time that the NHS in particular really realise this, that yeah. their, their, their life would be a lot easier if we could if we could put more into prevention and community support and avoid people Absolutely. reaching crisis points. It was really interesting because a few weeks ago I attended um, a sort of a, a big conference around creative health. And that's basically about how the creative sector really contributes to the health of um, our society and of communities. And the conversation sort of took a direction of what do we call creative? You know, is it yeah. only painting? Is music included in there? Is physical activity, can that be considered? Yeah. And for me, the question really wasn't, you know, the definition of what we call creative engagement. For me, it's much more about the definition of health. What yeah. do, where does health start and stop? And in my view, we are still having a, a definition of health that is too medical. Yes. And as we say, you know, there's now so much evidence that what drives health are mostly it's definitely in sort of deprived communities, what drives health or health inequalities are the social determinants. Indeed. And it's the social determinants that, you know, that, that's where we work um, and, and other organisations such as ourselves. And, yeah. and, and I think that's really the sort of conversation that needs to be had. You know? So I, I want to get really into health and well-being a second. But before I do, just listening to you talking about the difficulty of trying to get funding and things I can't mm-hmm. help thinking that it must be quite a ch- change of scene for you being on the other side of the table where you're used to being the England director for the National Lottery Community Fund where I'm sure everyone's really nice to you yeah. to, to, to now being the person who's looking for the funding. Yeah yeah I, I sort of said that you know I, I learned my lesson quite early on when I sort of made the shift um, and I started joking that Obviously, you know, it's not easy to give out four hundred million pounds and definitely not to do do it in a in, in you know, in a good quote unquote way, whatever that means. But I can tell you that it's definitely way more difficult to raise three million pounds. So yeah. I've definitely um, I've definitely learned my lesson. And you know, I've been reflecting obviously a lot on 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 my experience um as a funder, not only as England director, but you know, other roles that I had in the funding world where where, you know, we were listening a lot to feedback around, you know, power dynamics, etc. And, 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 you know, how do you make sure that the funding really gets to where it should go? How do you make good funding decisions? And, you know, to a certain degree, I wish that I maybe had done this role before some of my funding. You know, I was just thinking, I was just thinking that you probably that might have given you some really useful insights. 
Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, again, I know that funders are really sort of, you know, reflecting constantly on, on, on how they can, you know, make sure that funding goes where it needs to go. But yes, there is definitely a lot of fruit in, 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 in the feedback that I heard, um, when I was, um, still a funder in terms of, of, of the power dynamics, in terms of, um, how decisions are made, um, how funding can be really, you know, unhelpful to a certain degree um, because and the funding structure it still um, makes it difficult for organizations um, to, as I say, to sort of really think more strategically, be able to really respond in an agile way to what is required in the community and, and, and can give themselves and the community the sense of sustainability and, 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 yeah. and permanence, which, you know, we know that the sector is such in such a fragile state. Um, and that's really unhelpful also for communities because they don't know what they're going to be able to rely on going forward in terms of some of these services. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm sure that you'll work it out. In fact, I can see behind you on your blackboard there, you've got assume it's possible written. So I'm <laughs> guessing, I'm guessing that's how you have to start each day. Yeah, assuming that you will, you will piece together that three million that, that you need. It's a constant effort, but yes, that's what drives us. Obviously, we're not doing it at the end of the day. It's never about the money for money's sake, right? So for us, it's about, you know, how do we make sure that we can continue to support our community? That's, that's the sort of constant driving force. Exactly. So just to talk a little bit more about health and well-being now. So, sure. um, your organization has a big focus on that from what you said about the services, about it being a, an oasis and the, the type of place that you're trying to create and maintain there. What do you think the key components to healthy communities are? And does the, integrated care boards and the formal health system appreciate the role that organizations like you do and and you've started to answer this but i just want to ask yeah. you very directly yeah i mean so again in terms of what does it take to sort of you know look at a thriving community yeah. so for me it is really about taking that sort of more holistic approach right really yeah. sort of making sure that we move away from this um more solid approach that 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 institutions still um, work under. Um, it's really interesting because, again, I've been in the sector now for, uh, for, for some years, you know, I'm, I'm not a spring chicken anymore. Um, and, and, you know, I remember conversations around the need for more integration, more partnership working for years and years and years. And I have to say, I've been with the Bromley Bevel Centre now for two years, and I was a I was surprised and I still am surprised that when you actually look at how um, services are delivered on the ground, how support gets to communities on the ground, how we, you know, as a sector and as a system, um, you know, support communities, that it is still very, very siloed and yeah. that um, that um, there isn't really sort of those connections that are being made. So for me, that is still really sort of the challenge. And unless we we start taking a much more integrated approach, a more holistic approach, a more sort of connected approach, I don't think we'll be able to sort of really address um, some of the challenges that, that communities face. And it really is about sort of, you know, bottom up rather than top down as well. Yeah. Um, and you know. and do, do health leaders get that? I, I think that, you know, uh, to be fair, I think 
health leaders, leaders in the system leaders. I think that in theory, they, they do. I think that those conversations are happening. It's how you then think about what needs to change in practice on the ground. Yeah. And that, that's a huge distance to travel still, right? So it's something having sort of, you know, conferences and meetings where, you know, the, the, the powers that be make statements around we need to work together, we need to sort of integrate more. Um, but how that then translates and how things are happening on the ground, I still that think that that's where a lot of work needs to happen. So an example, for instance, I thought that that was just so telling, so interesting. So I mentioned this meeting, this conference where I went to that talked about creative, yeah. um, creative health. Really great meeting, very inspiring people in the room, great discussions. Let's say 90% of 90, 95% of the people in the room from the creative industries, smothering of, you know, voluntary sector organisations such as myself, and then a smothering of health people. Two weeks prior to that, I had been to a, a meeting um, that was organised by um, the North East London um, ICB, and that was about health inequalities. Yes. And there, you know, 95% of people from health smothering of VCS organizations and then some, you know, other types of organizations. Yeah. And for me, you know, obviously what needs to happen is those two those two meetings need to come together. And I yeah. thought it was just so telling that you had those two conversations really with the right intentions, you know, similar agendas. Everybody understands that things need to change to sort of address the growing health inequalities that communities are facing. So that the awareness is there, but the conversations, when you sort of take it down, still happen in silo and those connections are really not always happening. That's really interesting. One of the previous podcasts was with Nigel Edwards, who used to be the chief exec of the Nuffield Trust, and he's really uh, quite a deep thinker on these things. I think part of the problem with what you, you're describing there is, yes, the leaders can get together and agree, of course, we'll, we'll do better. But then when you get down to the kind of middle management layer of the organizations, they are probably overworked. Their job is to preserve the stability of what services they're trying to to deliver. So how on earth can you enact the change when... There's that situation. Yeah, and absolutely. And listen, you know, I, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in that same boat to, to a certain degree, right? So I, I would, I absolutely believe in partnership working. I totally, um, you know, believe that an organisation like the Bromley Babos Centre has a responsibility to make sure that we work with other organisations in the borough nationally, um, that we don't avoid duplication, um, etc., and, and that, mm-hmm. that we support each other. But you know, um, there's only so much time in the in the day. So I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very aware that people are trying their best, um, yeah. but that's the reality on the ground. Well, we, doesn't yeah, the sense. the reality on the ground is yeah. yeah. The reality on the ground is that it's not happening. We have to. We have to make some serious changes if we're to move from the focus of spending on crisis response and treatment rather than early help and prevention. You know, that we have to make that shift or else the the, the system is just going to be increasingly overwhelmed. Absolutely. I mean, you know, more scientific people than myself will will give you the the numbers. But if you look at the, the, the health system, 
Um, you know, if it continues to develop in the way that it does, um, you know, it will take up the entire GDP of our country in, in, you know, in a couple of decades. So, so, so it is absolutely 100% clear that the current model is not sustainable. Um, that, that is not a discussion yeah. point anymore. That's just the fact. That's like yeah. climate change. It's happening. It, it's something yes. needs to change. It's going to be difficult. There's no magic solutions. But some, you know, we will have to bite the bullet at some point because otherwise the system at some point will implode. It is not sustainable. That that is clear. That is clear. It's go as I said, it's going to be difficult and it will be painful probably to a certain degree. Um, but it needs it it will need to happen. And that's where I go back to the sort of notion of, you know, working in a more integrated way because, you know, we're talking a lot about health. Uh, and obviously, I do think that the health system definitely has a bigger part to play, but I don't think it's realistic to expect that the health system in isolation is going to solve this. It needs to come together with other parts of the of the system. And it's about that more joined up approach, um, because, um, yeah, it, 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 otherwise it's just not going to be able to. Yeah, yeah. So I just want to talk a little bit in a little bit more detail about the flow of money and resources within yeah. The health sector and and how you fit into that. So I know it's ferociously complicated, but can you have a go at explaining the structure yeah, and yeah, how the money that's, flows? That's another sort of interesting lesson. So again, we are not a small organisation. Oh, we're not a big organisation, um, um, but we're not a small organisation either. So I've been reflecting a lot in terms of you know how difficult we find it that what that then means for smaller organizations who have um even less resources than we do and um, so 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 we are in um obviously in in tower hamlets but from a health perspective we are sort of within a primary care network that's our sort of initial sort of entity and yes. and um so that is one of the sort of entities public health though which is also relevant to what we do that is driven by sort of by the local authority so so those things don't overlap and there's no sort of obvious connection pcns then sort of depend um on 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 regional structures um and yeah. the ultimate there is the the integrated care board and we have to sort of, you know, look at various sort of streams of money that become available at various points in time at various levels. Yeah. And sometimes there's opportunities for us to go directly to the ICB. Sometimes the money goes from the ICB to the local authority. So then we have to go there. Sometimes the money goes to the PCN network, so then we can go there. And sometimes the money goes to a bigger provider because there are sort of, you know, bigger health providers organized, obviously, under, under a kick structure, social enterprise yeah. structure. So sometimes they get access to funding from the ICB and we can then apply for some of that funding there. So it's, again, it's a real sort of puzzle in terms of trying to work out what funding is available, where and when. Yeah. Well, it's an ongoing, you know, discovery. I don't, I don't envy you. I don't envy you, but, you know, assume it's possible, I suppose. Assume it's possible, the mantra. It says something else onto that. Assume it's possible and keep it, is it keep it simple? Keep it simple. Yes. Keep it simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, very that, good. that would be my message to systems. Lessons to, 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 to live by. So, look, you having been 
with the National Lottery Community Fund, you'll you'll know a bit about investing in ideas and and social outcomes. So, is there a role for social investors? So, social investors, we've had a, a couple of them on the podcast, and I see this as a potential way of getting some funding into prevention activities. And I don't know what your view on that is. Um, absolutely, I, I think there's definitely a space uh, for social investors. Again. There's such a wide spectrum of social investors, right? You have social investors who actually are, um, you know, and, and, and the organization where I worked before National Lottery Impetus was in that sort of sphere. Um, you know, Impetus uh, sees itself as a social investor, but with grant funding, the, the returns are social returns, so no financial returns. So you have social investors who are satisfied with social returns all the way to social investors who basically are seeking close to commercial uh, financial yeah. returns. So it's a huge spectrum, um, uh, you know, of, 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 uh, of, of different types of um, um, investors. And absolutely, I do think, I, I totally think that they, they have a, um, that they have a role to play. Again, I think one of the sort of issues has been maybe with social investment is is that sort of understanding that certain activities, certain services will never really return a significant financial return. Some of the things that we do don't lend themselves well to um, funding that requires a financial return at some point. Yeah. So I do think that that's important to recognise. And then secondly, to your point, if, um, if social investors can be helpful in facilitating some of the switch to preventative um, support, you do need from the start to have then the sort of systems player around the table, because at some point there is then the sort of notion that they will take over the mantle so social investors can facilitate have some of that initial yeah. transition give comfort that the investment in prevention is helpful. But at some point, you do need to then have the systems, um, you know, decision makers to buy in to the switch yeah. and take yeah. on their part of the responsibility. And I think that that maybe hasn't always happened either. That how do you make sure that all the required stakeholders are around the table from the start? Because social investors cannot, um, as my sense, you know, necessarily fill the gap yeah. that needs to be filled. At some point, this system in itself needs to sort of shift as well. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, I, I have a big interest in this area. I think that there is a role for social investors, but you're, I think where you come back to there is there possibly shouldn't need to be. <laughs> yeah. Again, I really believe that, you know, if you think about some of the, 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 the challenges, um, and, and, and I don't want to go into the sort of, you know, blame culture and, and no, no, oh, it's all their fault and, you know, oh, if only they did what they should do, et cetera, et cetera. For me, at the end of the day, the challenges in our communities are real. And, you know, as we said, the systems are not, you know, not, not really yeah. fit for purpose. Some dramatic solutions are necessary. And for me, it's about sort of getting everybody around the table to work together to work together yeah. 
And um, I think, you know, it's about local authorities being around the table, help being around the table, some of the sort of national government departments being around the table, and then philanthropists and social investors and the private sector as well being around the table. Because this is about our society. This is about our communities. And it's relevant to us all. And the private uh, sector is so important. Like you, you, you want, like, for instance, big employers in an area to take absolutely. an interest in, in well-being and that as well. So it's, it's a joined up effort. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We all know, we all know that, um, one of the biggest sort of, um, the biggest changes for a person to sort of improve the, the outcomes, not just for themselves, but for their families is, um, you know, employment, employment yeah. that pays. And yes. ideally, employment that they don't have to travel two hours to get to. Yes, and indeed. That's all the Which, private sector obviously can can make such a difference. Yeah, indeed. Um, so just l- listening to you today, and obviously knowing a little bit about the centre, the the way that you create an impact isn't always going to be just a straight line. And I'm just wondering how you measure your impact and. You know, how, how do you, you know, do you have access to the data that you would need to enable you to do that properly? Uh, that, that's never, yeah, that, that's a never ending uh, conversation uh, as well. Again, I, I made the switch into um, the, the third sector um, over 20 years ago now, and it, it's been a constant conversation, really. Yeah. Um, we as an organization and, and and i've you know i've always sort of been very focused on impact and obviously organizations in the sector need to be able to demonstrate their impact because funders want them to a certain degree to demonstrate their impact but for me the yeah. reason why um i've always been um so focused on it is because I also want to know for myself and for our organization we are here um because we uh, we want to support our community and we, I want to know whether we actually achieve our aims. So for me, um, focusing on impact is, is absolutely important um, for us to start off with, but then also obviously to, to demonstrate to the wider world the value of what we do. Um, it is not easy. Um, I'm stating the obvious. It is not easy because it requires, again, resource. And we talked about sort of funding challenges already. And this is a type of resource that is not always appreciated and therefore not easily funded. So it does require investment. And we've made significant investment in the last couple of years to improve our ability to gather the right data and then to sort of put it all together and analyze it. Um, and, and as you say, given that we do so many different things, what was not easy is to identify what um, questions we wanted to um, analyze, what question, what data we wanted that would give us a sense of the difference that we made for the community across everything that we did. Yeah. And we sort of did work with the community to try and identify what they felt was relevant um, to describe what they saw as, as, as a positive life. And, and, and that was a whole piece of work that we invested in. And we're now tr- starting to see finally the sort of result of all that hard work and we are now able to sort of come up with statements that tell us that you know x percent of people who engage with the center can report an improvement in their well-being and we've just published our latest annual review and 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 the numbers are really really interesting in terms of some of that impact um, that people do say that 
a 39% improvement in their overall overall well-being, for instance. So we're mm-hmm. starting to see um, an improvability in terms of demonstrating that. The data that we don't have easily access to, which I think would make um, a huge difference to us and our conversation with others, is data of others, notably the health system. Because if the sort of assumption is that what we're doing helps the health system, then obviously what would be great is if we could link up our data to then data in the health system. And that is not easy. And that's not easy because the systems are complex and because of barriers around GDPR, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a conversation that we're pushing on. Uh, but yeah, that's not that's not an easy one. And uh, If you can't get access to uh, even, an, uh, you know, health data, then you really can't properly measure your impact because one of the reasons that people turn up at the GP is loneliness, for instance. So if they've got a centre like, like Bromley by Bo nearby, then they're going to turn up there perhaps and and you get some company yeah. and conversation there. And we know that it's it's been sort of people have managed to sort of put two and two together in, in, in the context of specific studies and so forth. So it is something that we're uh, constantly um, you know trying to push. And I'm hopeful that, you know, we, we will be able to sort of um, link up some of that data in the not too distant future. But, yes, it's, it's, it's the sort of next step for us um, in terms of actually demonstrating, again, to the health system what, what value um, organisations such as Bob Mibada actually create. Fantastic. So, Ellie, as a final question, what bit of advice would you give to someone working in or around public services who wants to make an impact in the way that you have? I, I think there's so many places where you where you can make an impact. One of the sort of great joys of, of being in, in, in an organisation like the Bromley Bevo Centre is having conversations with partner organisations and, and, and with sort of colleagues in local authority and the local GP practices and so forth. So I think for me, it's really about understanding how we all can work together to make the biggest difference. And at the end of the day, um, it's about people. It's about people. So I think we should just all challenge ourselves every day to think about outside of our own roles, our own organisation. What is relevant to communities? What is really sort of going to make the difference for the individuals that we're meeting on a day to day basis? Because I think that that is that is the, the, the you know, that's inevitable. We all. We all start thinking in our own little box, in our own little context. And so it's how do we constantly challenge ourselves to really always put community first, the individuals in our community first. I think that's really good advice. And also assume it's possible and keep it simple. There you go. There you (laughs) go. There you go. Ellie, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. No, it was a real pleasure. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed that conversation. Ellie captured the power of what a local community centre can do when it's providing holistic support, focusing on the wider determinants of health and well-being. And it's pretty clear that the formal NHS cannot deliver health acting on its own. So it really begs the question, as Ellie did, is you know, where does health begin and where does it end? Her view is that at the minute it's all too medical. And yes, of course, that's extremely important, but that's not going to drive future general public health. 
And it's pretty clear at the minute that the formal system doesn't value places like the Bromley by Bow Centre in the way that it should. If you look at this as a case study, they have a budget of £3 million, which comes from 130 different sources, I think Ellie said. That is not a stable platform to build on. There's no certainty, there's no ability to think long term. And it really is time that the system, inverted commas, saw places like the Bromley by Bow Centre as priority investments and key partners. The final point I want to make is an incredibly important one and one that I'm very focused on in mutual ventures at the minute. And it's the fact that services are still siloed. Ellie gave the example of there being no obvious connection locally between council public health services and primary care GP services. Now, these are two parts of the formal public sector, never mind relationships between that and the third sector in places like the Bromley by Bow Centre. So how are we going to shift this? And it's not that there aren't good intentions. There, there are plenty of leaders across the country really want this to happen, but it's not filtering down into their organizations and this is resulting in services at a a delivery point remaining siloed. You can probably tell this is a subject I'm quite interested and passionate about and we're doing some very interesting work in mutual ventures at the minute on trying to support leaders in a place in a system to think more collaboratively and to be enabling and to allow the services that they run to collaborate much more closely and this involves things like having a common vision, an agreed set of local priorities. All of these things are so important. So I'm sure we will return to this topic in the future. But as usual, thank you so much for your time and for listening. And please follow us wherever you get your podcasts.